For a status, I am Malihe Razazan. On this edition of a status, I speak with Dr. Nahid Siam Dust about her new book, Soundtrack of the Revolution, The Politics of Music in Iran, which describes the legacy of the music of the Iranian Revolution. Music was one of the first official casualties of the 1979 Iranian Revolution. Yet, even though it was banned following the establishment of the Islamic regime, it quickly crept back into the Iranian culture and politics. Even the state made use of music for its propaganda during the Iran-Iraq War. Over time, music provided an important political space where artists and audiences could engage in social and political debate. Now, more than 35 years on, both the children of the revolution and their music have come of age. Soundtrack of the Revolution tells the story of the central role of music in various social upheavals in Iran dating back to the Constitutional Revolution of 1905. Nahid, let's begin with the 1979 revolution in Iran and how music and women musicians became, as you say, one of the casualties of that major political moment in history. You write that the new, quote, pure society was not going to allow for music. In their view, music had been complicit in the moral corruption of youth. Actually, in the spring of 1979, couple of months after the revolution, Khomeini said, fundamental cultural revolution all over. He called for that. And he said it was necessary in Iran. He also said, exiting the ill-informed Western culture and replacing it with Islamic national educational culture and the cultural revolution in all fields across society demands such an effort that we should strive for long years to materialize it and fight against the deeply rooted penetration of the West. Take us to that moment in history, to 1979, and what he said and what they were planning to do in creating this new identity of, quote, pious Muslim. Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini at the time said that an Islamic revolution was nothing if not a cultural revolution. So it had to really seep in through people's everyday interactions and communication and the modes of being and producing and and all of that and of course in 1979 in the years leading up to the revolution Iran was a very polarized society one pole of that was the Islamists of course who eventually took over and as some would say hijacked the revolution and basically took the reins of government and that is in a great part many historians will argue because of the figure of Imam Khomeini because of this charismatic figurehead and no other faction really had someone like him and so he sort of united people behind him so Khomeini you have to understand is a cleric, a sort of high, very high-standing cleric, someone who's emulated, who had been revered for many years. And he had spent his time in the seminaries of Qom. And after that, after he'd been expelled from Iran in the mid-60s in Baghdad, and then, of course, in Neufle Chateau in France, right before coming back to Iran. So he's not exactly the type of person who was listening to music. When Khomeini talked about music specifically, what he was referring to, and this is something that really came about in my conversations with 
some of the people whom I interviewed for the book, what really transpired was that what he understood to mean music was very much the music that was played in the cabarets and the sort of westernized, or not even just westernized, but the cabarets of the Shah era Iran. This, these were cafes or clubs where women and men they mixed uh, freely. There was alcohol consumed. There was acts in which barely clad women would perform songs on stage. When Khomeini talked about eliminating music because it was like opium for the masses, it corrupted Iran's youth, he really meant that to music scene. And this became evident because not long after the revolution, one of Khomeini's dearest protégés, Ayatollah Mutahari, he was assassinated. And upon the assassination, some people in state radio, in the most arch-conservative place of state radio and television, they produced a song. They brought it to the imam himself and showed it to him. And after listening to it, he said, I do not cry much, but I cried when I heard your song. This is the most beautiful song that I've ever heard. And if you continue making this kind of music, I will support you. So from that point onward, he allowed certain kind of music, uh, sort of committed music, to continue within the framework of the state. But, as you mentioned, the biggest casualty of the revolution was and still remains women musicians and women singers. One should probably say more specifically women singers, because in fact women have made incredible strides, and part because of the the restrictions that have existed have in great numbers pursued instrumental music. And today, if you were to go to a concert in Iran, you would see many musicians, many female musicians on stages of all kinds of genres of music performing on stage. But what one still does not see, and nearly 40 years after the revolution, is a woman singing solo. The solo female voice is still banned. At the time of the revolution and before the revolution in the Shah's era, as you well know, some of Iran's greatest singers of all time have been women, starting from Qamar, who in the 1920s already took off her headscarf yes. and sang to a mixed-gender audience a very feminist song, a sort of anti-veiling song. That was sort of Qamar's debut on the stage, was this super feminist anti-veiling song, all the way through to Mahvash, for example, in the 1950s, who when she died, Tehran had never seen a greater public hmm. funeral. Her death brought forth the greatest number of people to mourn her on the streets. This is a woman who sang very sort of lewd songs in cabarets. And onward, of course, many, many great singers and vocalists, including Gugush, who's the greatest Iranian pop star of all time, male or female. So in a culture where women singers have historically, traditionally been so important, all of a sudden the Islamists decided that the woman's voice was not uh, halal, basically. And this is rooted uh, yeah. to some degree in sort of Islamic writings, and I can explain that if you're interested in that. But instantly women were forbidden from singing solo. And they were forbidden from singing in general. It was really only 20 mm. years into the revolution that eventually people developed this strategy, if you will, of multi-vocal singing, where women were then slowly allowed to come on stage and sing in plural voices, in sort of choirs or in two-voice ensembles. And that is still allowed, but the solo female voice remains banned. And they have become also part of the very creative space that 
young musician artists have created in Iran, which we'll talk about later. But I just wanted to go back to what Khomeini said, because in your book, you say that later when you spoke with someone, he said that his words were misunderstood. But when he gave an interview with this radio station, Daria, I believe, in 1979, he was very clear in what he said. He said, one of the things that intoxicates the brains of our youth is music. Music causes the human brain, after one listens to it for some time, to become inactive and superficial, and one loses seriousness. Of course, music is a matter that everyone naturally likes, but it takes the human being out of the realm of seriousness and draws him towards uselessness and fertility. What was it made for and what kind of feeling did it cause in the listener? Part of the prohibitions against music and the tendency by clerics to oppose music is rooted in Islam, Islamic, and I shouldn't say rooted in Islam, but rooted in Islamic interpretations, because this is all about interpretation. Islam is about interpretation. So basically, there's an edict that says, there's a, um, there's a, uh, there's a verse that says, idle talk is not good. And some Islamic scholars throughout the times interpreted that to mean idle talk could also be music. And um, that was then sort of expanded and people pontificated on it. And in the traditions, it is said that rana, the kind of uh, singing that comes from the, from the throat that is just for pure entertainment, that takes one away from God, basically, is not permitted, is not halal, one shouldn't be listening to it. But at the same time, when it comes down to it, these scholars are asked, Khomeini was asked and Khomeini has also been asked, who decides what kind of music separates one from God? Who decides what kind of music leads to that kind of perturbation or that internal excitement that is not considered to be Islamic? And both Khomeini and Khomeini on this point have said that, well, really, it comes down to orf. And orf means convention. So the conventions of society, within society there will be conventions whereby certain sounds or certain kind of singing is considered to be laugh, is considered to be rana, is considered to be just for pure ungodly entertainment. So who decides what's rana, what's laugh, what kind of music takes one away from God, so to speak, and is for pure entertainment? And both uh, Khomeini and Khamenei on this point have said, well, convention, but within the Islamic Republic, where there aren't the free channels for coming up with completely freely decided conventions within the structures of the Islamic Republic, of course, such conventions cannot be arrived at. So in the absence of freely decided conventions, then the question is, how about outside of conventions? And again, Khomeini and Khamenei say, well, it really depends on what's in the heart of the listener. Mm -hmm. It's really basically up to the listener. That's a revolutionary thought, if you think about it, for Khomeini and Khamenei. Basically, what they're saying is that it should be really up to the listener what he listens to. But at the same time, they make sure, he made sure, or they made sure that what people listen to is permissible within the parameters that they defined. That's exactly the point. So within the parameters of the Islamic Republic, certain guidelines will be placed by clerics, by those who have been put in charge of leading society, by these jurisprudence. 
and they will ascertain what is permitted within these structures and only from among those can listeners really choose what they can listen to themselves. And also because they were trying to create this perfect Muslim pious citizen, they Mm -hmm. eventually thought that the choices that they will make will be aligned with the choices that they want them to make. Exactly. So they're given a series of choices to lead the faithful, so to speak, toward the kind of society, Islamic ideal Islamic society. It was more the intention of the music. What was this music built for? And what kind of state of thinking or feeling did it cause in listeners? If that music caused a state in which one had greater allegiance to the revolution and to the war and to these Islamic ideals, if it was committed, they called it committed music, that was okay. But, you know, you also have to understand that Khomeini, when he made that speech to the radio staff, that was still the revolutionary Khomeini speaking, the cleric who had come from the seminaries and was still speaking from that positionality, whereas later on, as he took up the state and Khomeini became a statesman, so to speak, because he was basically the head of a government, the practicalities and the pragmatism of running a government dictated that he change his position on that. Not only was there a revolution, Iran was attacked by Iraq in September 1980, a long war ensued, and music was needed on radio and television in order to create spirit for Iranians. And in fact, Khomeini, not unlike the Shah, had stated that he opposes music that is very sad. He didn't think music that was very sad was good for the spirit of the nation and that music should have epic qualities, the kinds of qualities that sort of bolster people's spirit. And also because they were mobilizing tens of thousands of people to go to war. Mm. So music became an effective tool of propaganda and mobilizing the masses. That's why it became part of their whole cultural transformation of the Iranian society. One of the first institutions that the Islamists occupied following Mm -hmm. the collapse of the old regime was what had been the state radio and television after what you call cleansing them of staff and programming that were deemed un-Islamic, they began broadcasting revolutionary songs from the airwaves. So can you give us a sense of what people heard in the early days of the revolution and what are some of the songs that embody those days and those moments? I think no song better embodies that revolutionary moment of the Islamists taking over, the signal that this is now an Islamic republic as opposed to any other kind of republic that it could have arguably become. It could have become more leftist. It could have become uh, moderately religious nationalist. But no, it became an Islamic republic. And no song signaled that better than the first song that was broadcast from state radio after it had been taken over by the Islamists, and that was Reza Rugeri's voice with Iran, 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 which is a fairly simple song. The two words that it most intones are Iran and Islam, coupling those things together. And Reza Rugeri, in fact, has said in interviews subsequently that he was inspired by the rooftop cries of Allahu Akbar for that song, because slightly sort of in the middle of the song, 
once the beginning passage is over, you hear Allah, 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 Akbar. And he takes that string and the song is sort of formulated around these rooftop cries, which, by the way, are still revolutionary. As we know, in 2009, when the green uh, movement protests were happening, people once again took to the rooftops and started shouting Allahu Akbar, in part because this was not signaling that they wanted to return to affirm the Islamic Republic. Yeah. It was actually a subversive measure to state that God, the highest being, was still on the side of the just, of the justfully protesting Iranians who were seeking freedom and a better political system, so to speak. So what happened to him, Reza Rougali? still is in Iran. He's a sort of semi, not really celebrity, but he hangs out with other musicians. He appears whenever there's any sort of commemoration of those revolutionary times. But he also, you can see him in photographs with actors and actresses. He's not exactly the poster child for Islamism in Iran. He's just another man who at the time of the revolution, at this extremely hopeful moment when Iranians had come together to topple a dictator whom the world thought unshakable, you know, had emerged and sung this very hopeful song, but who didn't exactly envision that eventually that revolution would lead to the current uh, state. A lot has happened in the past 38 years. Also, leftists played a major part in the revolution. There were leftist revolutionary songs, some of them that were later appropriated by the state. Mm -hmm. What were some of the more powerful songs that were produced by leftist groups in Iran? There are many songs, but one song that actually also came back was not only played then, but also resurfaced again during the Green Movement in 2009, is the song Off Top Quran. Quran is about planting not just trees and flowers but also uh, you know the woman who's planting these and the men who are planting these have guns and they're revolutionary they're militant revolutionaries Mir Hossein Musavi dug this song out 30 years after the revolution because it's an incredibly beautiful song and it's also a very hopeful song where John 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 there's stars and there's life and there's hope and there's, there's this revolutionary movement for a dawn breaking and a whole new world beginning. Musavi took this song in 2009 and became his campaign song and 
I was sitting next to a woman who was at the biggest campaign event in the lead up to the 2009 elections. And the moment the song started, she broke down in tears because to her, Musavi's use of this leftist song signaled there was a kind of forgiveness that was being offered toward these millions of Iranians who weren't Islamists, who were of other political convictions, who had contributed to the revolution, but that had been subsequently pushed away, some of them thousands executed in the prisons and so on. So leftist songs have been used not just by leftists then, but have been recycled even by the Islamic Republic's own personas, which Musabi is. And you write that during the 2009 protest movement and when they started using that song, there was actually a debate within the campaign whether it was proper to appropriate a song from the past that was specifically produced by leftists and it was a different era and how they can use it effectively without appropriating it. So there was also, a, seems like there was a lively debate amongst the campaign workers. That's something I was told by one of the main people involved in Musabi's youth campaign. There was a lot of debate because some of the people involved thought that it was just not quite right, in part because these leftists had been completely sidelined, driven from the country, and as I said, many of them also executed. So to take a song that encapsulated their movement and appropriated, some of the people in the campaign had problems with it. And actually, the person I spoke to said, I kind of felt like it was like Ahmadinejad taking Yared Abistani, which is another song of protest. It's become a song song of protest in post-revolutionary Iran. Yared Abistani also hails from 1979, but toward the late 90s, it was picked up by the student movement as the song of their protest movement. And really, it's about your primary schoolmate, the little kid sitting next to you in elementary school. And the thing that binds these two children, they're both children of Iran, no matter what their political convictions will be eventually, they are bound together by the fact they are Iranians and they will contribute to the kind of nation that Iran ultimately will be. So it's not instantly political in the refrain at least, but clearly signals that kind of union between Iranians. this song was taken by Ahmadinejad for his campaign in 2005 and again in 2009, reappropriated in order to get some sort of authenticity because this song projected so much authenticity for the student movement. And the person who was involved in these conversations for Musavi's movement, she said, 
You know, I said it was like Ahmadinejad taking Yara Dabestani and using it for his campaign. We shouldn't be using this Aftab Karan song for Musavi's campaign, but I suppose her opinion was overrided by others who believe that it signaled inclusivity and was a beautiful song that should be used. They also wanted to use a song that a lot of people connected with and knew, so they didn't want to have a completely new song that nobody could connect with, and so they ended up choosing this leftist song. Music has played an important role in Iran's political upheavals since the constitutional revolution of 1905-1911. This period produced some of Iran's most enduring freedom-seeking songs, a repertoire that continued during the 1979 revolution, and it was again revived at the height of the Green Uprising in 2009. You write about a group called Chavosh, which was also instrumental in reviving these political songs that goes back all the way to the Constitutional Revolution time. So at the time of the Constitutional Revolution in 1905 to 1911, a man by the name of Arif Qazvini really turned poetry into political songs. There was no radio, there was no television, there were some newsletters and so on. But the absence of mass media, this is something I write about in the book, his concerts effectively became a mass medium for political protest. And Arif Ghazvini is credited with creating the political tasnif, taking Persian classical music based in the Persian repertoire of the Radif, which is fairly complicated and usually based in improvisation and creating these shorter songs, something like two to three minutes with a repetitive refrain and infusing them with political meaning. He did this in the ninth, early 20th century. And then Reza Shah took over and the political tasnif was basically banned and he promoted a kind of sort of nationalist surud and Persian classical music was thought to be sort of out of it, complacent. Even, even in the years leading up to the revolution, people viewed classical Persian music as backward, so to speak, stiltified. But then a, a group of young Persian classical musicians, the best in their trade, the youngest and the best at the time, led by Muhammad Azza Lotfi, Muhammad Azza Shajarian, Hussein Ali Zadeh, and Shahram Naziri, they got together, and many others, they got together and they formed the Chavosh Cultural Society and really decided to join the revolutionary movement. They were fed up with Persian classical music that wasn't part of uh, the people's political and social concerns and really revived the kind of music that Arif Ghazvini had created nearly a century earlier at the time of Iran's constitutional revolution. They took some of his songs, but they also created other songs. One of the songs that they revived, for example, was Hengam May. Some of the lyrics are that from the blood of the youth, Tulips have sprung. Oh dear, tulips have sprung. This is a very famous song that all Iranians know.
And this song was also again revived at the time of Iran's Green Movement in, in 2009. And people took the song again, I think, in the rendition of Mohammad Bezal Shajadian and uh, laid it over on YouTube with videos of the demonstrations and protests in 2009. So, you know, people often think when they think about protest music in the Iranian context, they often think about underground music, rap and rock and all of that. Uh, but I think that Iran's most potent form of protest music really is Persian classical music because they, this is poetry that uh, many Iranians uh, understand. It's implicit, it's, it's subversive, but it's not super explicit. So people feel, people have felt comfortable for decades partaking in this sort of secret lang language, so to speak. It's secret in so far as it's not explicit. But most, if not every Iranian, sort of understands the implicit messages of these songs that call for freedom and democracy mm -hmm. and so on. Among Chavish's first songs was Dew Turned mm -hmm. Into Blood. And it was a song that commemorated mm -hmm. 1978 Black Friday. <laughs> Trabush took songs from the Persian classical tradition, but they also took other songs from other traditions, uh, such as Jale Hunshod. It was about Jale Square, where during Black Friday, a large number of protesters were gunned down. At the time, actually, it was believed that the number was much larger than we subsequently found out they were. And, but at the time, people thought thousands of people had been gunned down at this protest. So it was a turning point for the revolution. From that Black Friday onward, I believe it is the 8th of September, 1978, that is when the Chavushis signed their resignation to state radio. They said, we're no longer part of this apparatus. We will no longer sing on the state airwaves of the Pahlavi regime. They quit state radio and they went underground and started producing um, these songs, which were so influential for the revolutionary movement, including a song called Jale Khunsho. Jale being the name of the square where Black Friday happened, and Jale also means dew. So dew turned to blood. What happened to blood? Blood became madness. So uh, describing this revolutionary moment in which people basically turned. They they turned and they decided to take arms and, and rise up against the Pahlavi monarchy. A few short months after the revolution, the war broke out. Iran-Iraq um, war lasted more than eight years. How did the regime use music as what you describe as revolutionary propaganda in the long Iran-Iraq war? 
the state decided to make use of music for its revolutionary uh, spirit making, so to speak, to send all these young people into war. And one of the voices that stood out at the time was uh, Sadiq Ahangaron's voice. He was called Imam Khomeini's Bolbol, Imam Khomeini's Nightingale. He so became the voice of that period. And uh, the kind of um, chanting or music, if you, if, uh, if you would like, that he made was emblematic of um, the songs one would hear on state media, although there were many others too, but they were basically march music with passages of uh, sort of lamentation, of uh, commemoration of those who died on the front lines. Uh, in one of Sadr Ahangaran's pieces, he is standing in front of hundreds if not thousands of soldiers and uh, he sings about the marches of Khuzestan because Khuzestan, the southern province of the south western province of Iran which was attacked first by Iraq gave many many martyrs and in fact um, it was taken for a while and uh, it was a very very a very bloody battle that allowed Iran to regain control of that territory and he sings the names of the martyrs and the soldiers who are facing him are beating their chests. And it's a sort of interactive orchestra. It's amazing. Sadat Ohangaran is singing these chants and the soldiers are basically the instruments. They're beating their chests mm -hmm. and out comes this music that is made of without instruments. And that was the kind of music that he made was very grassroots and and uh, from the ground up, if you will, which is why I think it had so much resonance with Iranians at the time who were part of the war effort. He would go to the front lines and sing, for example, Oh, Army of, this, of the Savior of Times, Savior of Times being the Messiah within the uh, Shia tradition, Imam Mahdi, the time for the Army of the Savior of Times, the battle has come, get ready, get ready for a merciless battle, tie your shoelaces, put on your headband, and get in there. And that's the kind of music that he would sing on the war fronts. And as we know, on both sides, something like a million people died, most of them quite young. And some of these songs were accompanied by images of these young kids going to war. Yeah, and some of these images are quite heartbreaking. There's one in particular, for example, of, of this particular song, Lashkar Sahib Zaman, Imam Mahdi's uh, army, where the camera pans and sort of stops on one boy who doesn't look any older than mm -hmm. 10, perhaps 11, and he's sitting there. And, 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 you know, Iranians know people. They know their sons of their neighbors or cousins and brothers who went into battle who were, who were teenagers. So, Nahid, how effective was this propaganda? First of all, this kind of music was in some ways novel because it was, it was rooted in the tradition of religious lamentation, which a large majority of Iranians would connect with uh, viscerally because it's something they've grown up with. It's the kind of religious lamentation, Rose Khuni or Nohe Khuni, 
that they uh, that their families had either during Ashura for the commemoration of the imams or even at uh, family funerals that kind of lamentation is done so this sort of lamentation was combined with more instrumental epic kind of music is what they call it, sort of cinema music, if you will. This combination, I think, was quite powerful. Many Iranians you would speak to would say they, they hated that music and turned off television when they heard it. But of course, the majority of Iranians who do have a voice that penetrates, uh, so to speak, you know, our English-speaking Western world happen to be from the upper echelons of Iranian society. And a good number, if not the majority of, of those who made sacrifices in the war effort did not come from the upper echelons, at least not from the westernized mm. necessarily. And so I'm not sure how many of them would say, oh, we switched off television when we heard it. I don't think they could. They had sons and uncles and brothers and fathers out on the front lines. And this is this music kept them going. This music gave them purpose, made them realize what they're in it for, is for, for an Islamic Iran, for justice, for Islam. So this music enforced that. And that way you could say, yes, it was effective. I, I'm not sure that any state can run a war in a sort of 20th century modernity without backing it up with uh, music on its mass media. We discussed the role of music in the aftermath of the 1979 revolution and during the eight years of Iran-Iraq war. What happened to the music scene in Iran right after the war? So after the war, there was a bit of a pause of some sort. The government was trying to figure out how to shape the scene after the deadly war had ended. And people were still sort of slumped in this phase of real sadness. They had lost a lot of people to the war. Really, the change that happened was that Akbar Rafsanjani was elected as president, and he came in with more of a moderate view toward the public sphere and opened things up to, to some extent. So some cultural centers were built, more freedom was given in the public, and concerts started to be run. The, one of the very first ones was by the preeminent vocalist uh, of Persian classical music, Muhammad Zashajarian, and bit by bit... There were concerts here and there, and eventually, within a few years, this new, interesting genre started happening that people referred to as classic pop. It really depended on who was who the creator was, the artist was, but it, it was a combination of folklore and march with more poppy sounds. It wasn't quite pop music. It still had a lot of remnants of this march music or other kind of uh, folk music. In your book, you write that there is still a lot of speculation about the reasons behind the government's decision to permit pop music. Many believe that the government decided to end its ban and partake in this lucrative entertainment sector simply because it was powerful to control the flow of expatriate pop music through the black market and newly emerging technologies such as satellite TV and the Internet. That's right. Toward the end of the 90s, what happened was, was that a whole new generation of music graduates was coming out into the workforce. These were not ideological people. These were young kids who wanted to make music for a living. They'd studied music for several years and they entered the workforce and were looking ways to make a living and created music. Of course, they were all in their early to mid-twenties, so they their influences, their musical influences, uh, for the most part, were either pre-revolutionary pop music, which had maintained a very strong presence in the lives of Iranians 
well after the revolution. So in the first two decades of the Islamic Republic, a majority of the music that Iranians still listened to was coming in from Los Angeles, where the pre-revolutionary musicians had set up a home, a sort of pop empire, which is why Los Angeles is referred to as Tehranjelis. Your listeners will know this very well. And so for two decades, this is what they were listening. So their musical influences were coming from these pre-revolutionary mostly or post-revolutionary, but in L.A., sort of a similar style music and also from the West. So they created these musical pieces that were very clearly pop music. And for nearly two decades, the Islamic Republic had banned pop music mm -hmm. because pop music had maintained that subversive aspect because it was precisely the kind of society that Khomeini had decreed to be corrupt and that needed to be eliminated, the kind of music that needed to be eliminated. And so when all of a sudden, nearly two decades into the revolution, people started hearing pop music, one of the creators of pop music, Khashoyar Etemadi, who's sort of credited with having created the very first pop song in post-revolutionary Iran, uh, his anecdote was that he was sitting in a taxi and his song, which, you know, again, was this first pop song, when his song was played on the radio, he said the taxi driver just put his foot on the brakes, came to a screeching halt, and he said, oh, my God, I can't believe Daryush, this pre-revolutionary pop singer, is back. So this guy's voice is very similar to Daryush's. And to this taxi driver, it just sounded like one of these pop giants of pre-revolutionary of Shah-era Iran had returned to Iran. And he said, oh my God, things are really about to change in a big way. You also mentioned this in your book, that the voices and the styles, they were similar, as you alluded to, to popular Los Angeles star. And it was in order to draw attention of Iranians away from what authorities considered to be depraved, expatriate, content invading the country. Right. So a lot of people at the time thought this was a top-down decision. The, the decision makers within the very arch-conservative state media had decided to create this pop, which was very similar and similar sort of vo a lot of voices that were compared to those voices to deflect their attention away from these Los Angeles stars. But in effect, what I found in my research was that this process was not top-down. It was quite, and it's really instructive about how policy comes about or how cultural policymaking happens or and has happened in the Islamic Republic. Not, you know, the conspiracy theories of everything being completely controlled or top-down doesn't really work out in this instance. In this case, it was these young people really trying to push and taking their songs to state radio and to different places and trying to get them aired or published and you know being told for several years four to five years no sorry no can't do it your voice is too similar to this pre-revolutionary singer can't do it can't do it and then finally the person who was in charge of music in uh, state radio and television a uh, man by the name of Ali Muallim Dam Ghani. He was in charge of music and he happened to be uh, himself a poet, someone with a more open worldview and he also happened to be a confidant of Ayatollah Khamenei. So he had real political capital. He was someone who was not afraid from within state media to take certain action and I'm sure there were many conversations back and forth and eventually he allowed that to happen but we have to understand that it wasn't the impetus, the innovation didn't come from the state, it did indeed come from these young Iranians who pushed for it and eventually found an official 
who had an open heart and an open mind. And in fact, in his interview with me, he completely confused Khashayar Etemadi with Daryush. You know, when he was talking about Khashar, he would keep calling him Daryush. Finally, he said, you know, this young man came to us and he had a voice which was a very revolutionary voice because Daryush himself had been regarded as being political and revolutionary, even though he was pre-revolutionary and of the Shah era and had to flee. But he, he was considered a political singer and still is a very political singer. He has, has a lot of social, uh, political, uh, critical content in his songs. But he said, he came to us and I realized the Shah era, the path, these pop singers are part of their history. And the phrase in it that he mentioned to me was, the river flows into the sea and not the sea into the river. And what he meant by that was that that history was from Iran. It was a precedent or a legacy that Iranians within Iran could draw upon. That should not be a problem. And of course, that in itself is a revolutionary thought because the Islamic Republic and the founders of the Islamic Republic had said that anything prior to the revolution, the Shah era, had to be pretty much eliminated from history. But this official, he had a more open view and he said, you know, this is our history and it's a legacy that the youth can draw upon. And so once they greenlighted one or two songs, uh, the flow was unstoppable. Mm -hmm. There were dozens of young people who were looking to make this kind of music. And all of a sudden, the airwaves opened up and this kind of new pop music was all over the place. There were dozens of concerts mushrooming all over Tehran and eventually the rest of Iran. And uh, the late 90s and early 2000s, during the Khatami era, is an era that many young people now in their 30s and 40s, fond, you know, who are coming of age back then, really fondly remember as quite an exciting period in, in Iran. And this um, the singer you spoke about, Khashoyore Etemadi, mm-hmm. um, if I remember correctly, he was banned, even though he, he had permits to perform I mean, all of these singers at one point or another, the, the, the question of banning is also a little murky. It's mm. hard to know exactly. Oftentimes, these uh, artists are not told you are banned from singing on, let's say, state media or from having concerts. They just don't get permits. And so sometimes it happens that a singer will go for two or three years without being able to get a permit, and then all of a sudden he will get a permit. So most artists will have periods like that. And I think it has, it's, it's a good question because I think it has somewhat to do with the fact that the state bodies or the officials in charge of the cultural sphere like to retain some kind of control mm-hmm. over it. And so if a singer becomes too popular, for example, that can become an issue and they may put a break on a particular performer for a while before reallowing him again. We're going to talk about this uh, more later in our conversation. In late 90s, we also uh-huh. witnessed the birth of underground music in mm-hmm. Iran. And over time, we saw the diversification of underground music that included mm-hmm. rap, rock, heavy metal, and those genres which uh, government did not like or did not give than mm-hmm. the necessary permit to perform in public. Underground music initially in Iran was, for the most part, rock music. And it had, those, the seeds of it were planted already sort of in the late 80s. One of uh, Iran's most famous female folk singers, Sima Bina, her son, Arashimitui, was part of this beginning group of young 
men in Iran who were who played an instrument and who liked to perform in bands together. And so there were little bands here and there who performed. Of course, this is a time in Iran when anyone found with an instrument, let alone anyone playing music, let alone rock music, would get into great trouble. I mean, this is a time when people's instruments were taken away from them. If the police, for example, found you with your instrument on the street, even the, just the issue of a musical instrument was problematic. Throughout the war until 1988, and even for many years, for you know five, six years later, but these bands were practicing. They, it was very hush-hush. They had makeshift studios in their basements oftentimes, which is why underground music, the term in the Iranian case, is more apt than it could be elsewhere, because it was literally oftentimes in people's basement, so it was literally underground. But in these makeshift studios, they were really experimenting with uh, new forms of music. And toward the late 90s and early 2000s, people became aware of this underground rock scene. And one organization that was very significant in bringing this underground rock scene, or music scene, we should say, not all of it was uh, rock, of course, um, to the fore was Tehran Avenue. Tehran Avenue was a site run by Sohrab Mahdavi that basically covered cultural happenings around town. Tehran Avenue, so it's around Tehran, and would write about music, would write about film, theater, all kinds of things. And Tehran Avenue decided to run a contest called mm -hmm. Tehran Avenue Underground Music Contest. And this is at the time of dial-up when, you know, you would dial a phone number and do-do-do-do-do and yeah. wait for, you know. And even at that time of super slow internet, they invited bands to submit their pieces for a contest. And a lot of bands submitted their pieces. And they also asked listeners, so on people who heard this music online, to vote for their favorite piece. And so, uh, you know, there was a number one, two, three places that were awarded with the prize was to be able to perform together at this concert. Unfortunately, that was not allowed by the Ministry of Culture. In the end, it was a very depressing experience for those participants. And in fact, this episode is something that Mujtaba Mirtahmas covers in one of his documentary films. I believe that one is called Offbeat, if I'm not wrong, but uh, a wonderful documentary film about this whole episode. Tehran Avenue, through this contest, brings to the fore these bands. And some of these bands that I spoke with, uh, some of their members told me back then, you know, we didn't even realize that there were so many bands across Tehran playing music. And it was because of this contest that we realized this is a real movement. This is not just five bands across Iran. So this scene was very lively and became more and more lively. And as the restrictions on practice and recording, as especially as recording technology became much easier and people could just record with their laptops at home and didn't necessarily have to go to a studio and with the internet, but with the ability of being able to put your music out there and find your fans on the internet without having to go physically stand in a square and sell your tapes, which is something that Chavosh, the group that we talked about last time, actually had to do. So they actually had to go stand in squares and sell their tapes. This was no longer necessary with the internet. Mm -hmm. This really facilitated the growth and the flow and the exchange of this network of young people who consumed this music. One of the most famous bands early on that had a real following was Oham. 
and Oham was very interesting because they fused rock music with poet with Persian poetry and also some Persian instrumentation. So they they created this fusion music that was very rocky and resonated with young Iranians. It wasn't just another kind of rock that was similar to Western music. It really was their own. It, it wove together these different traditions. Oham, in fact, is the band that, by most counts, had probably the very first underground rock concert in Iran. It uh, was in 2000, I believe, 2000 or 2001, it, at the uh, Russian Orthodox Church, because the spaces of minorities in Iran, as well as foreign embassies, are sort of... Um, outside of the jurisprudence of the Iranian government. So those are spaces where things that are outside of the legal framework of the Islamic Republic can happen. So Oham booked this concert at the Russian Orthodox Church. And it was an underground concert, but it was so many young people knew about it. Anybody who was sort of in the know and part of the happening youth in Tehran at the time knew about this concert and went to this concert. And I've subsequently managed to get some of the photos of that concert and they're, they're in the book. And what you see and what you hear talking to people who went to it was headbanging. I mean, it was just an amazing concert like <laughs> any other rock concerts. Headbanging going on, crowd surfing going on. Oham playing its music and Oham had tried for many years to get a permit to publish its work officially and had been denied a permit for many, many years and eventually because of the internet managed to put it out there. They still continued for many years afterwards to get a permit even though they went abroad, gave concerts and finally in 2014, in 2014, so more than 15 years after they had started their musical activity and had tried to get a permit, they finally got a permit to give a concert in a performance space under Azadi Freedom Square. And I happened to be there and went to the concert. And it was really moving because you had Oham on the stage and on the right and left of the stage, you had the eyes of Ayatollah Khomeini and Ayatollah Khomeini looking down as these rockers rocked. And what was really moving was that it had been so long since this band had created music that many of the fans who came to the concert had brought their children to see Oham. You mentioned in your book, Minders still monitor all concert audiences to make sure no one gets up to dance or becomes too enthusiastic in other ways. That's right. So whereas in the late 90s, when I first went back to Iran, I witnessed a scene at a hotel restaurant where there was a piano set up next to the pool and this pianist was playing some pieces. When he finished, nobody would clap. Everybody knew exactly that it was just okay to listen to this music outside in public, but it wasn't okay to clap. Now we've moved way beyond that. And, you know, there are these dance pop concerts that happen all over Iran. But even within these concerts, there are minders who are going around making sure that people don't get too excited so that they don't get up and dance. But people are clearly dancing in their seats with their upper bodies and flailing their 
arms around. So in one part, that's, of course, an issue of control, of being able to control the, the, the public space and mm-hmm. what can and cannot happen within it. But the parameters of what can and cannot happen within that space have changed quite a bit over the course of the last three or four decades. What about women vocalists and female alternative musicians? in the underground music scene? So women were shut out of the public space, as we know. In the underground music scene, there were few women who continued making their music. So one prominent one is Mahsa Vahdat, for example. She continued making her music, and which are sort of also kind of fusion music. She takes from Persian classical music and fuses it with other kind of more jazzy genres of music. And Mahsa Vahdat has not been able to publish an album in Iran or give a concert. She could give a concert to an all-female audience, but she's refused to do so, like other female musicians who I know. For example, Sima Bina also refuses to give concerts to all-female audiences. But women in the underground music scene, they weren't that numerous. And I think that has in part to do with the fact that for the young Iranians coming of age in a post-revolutionary Iran, first of all, the strictures were too great, the risks possibly too great, and also just too few examples. When you shut out the female voice completely from the public sphere, from the media, from everything, that will have some kind of consequence for young musicians coming about. So at some point in the late 90s, the Iranian state decided, you know what, we, we will allow for women to sing. And they created the Jasmine Women's Festival, which was just female musicians singing to all female audiences. And I've been to some of these concerts and it's sort of slightly ridiculous because, you know, they make sure that no man whatsoever can in any way gaze inside or all women. Um, And some female musicians have refused to be part of that. But the point I would like to make is that when you shut out, when you eliminate the female voice from the public sphere, and I think this is something that we have seen in the Iranian example, it has its consequences. So the narrative that we would like to see, and we do see that every now and then, there are female musicians who break through that and who are able to voice their come out and be a voice. But it has led to a sort of suppression, I think, of at least female vocalists. So when you look at the underground music scene, there are very few examples of female musicians who have come to prominence. Even within the underground music scene that's not regulated by the state, that's enabled by the internet, there simply aren't that many examples of female musicians, whether it's the underground rock scene or more and more in rap, that is a phenomenon. And in in rap music, one of the first, one of the pioneers of among female musicians was Salome MC. Come and go, get out of the house, we have a 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 house
And bit by bit, there were also other ones, so Gand and so on. And now we're at a point where we're really at the third generation of post-revolutionary rappers, and among them are many more girls. These we're talking about teenagers here. So within rap music, that has been more of something that we've actually seen. But within rock music, for various reasons, and I've talked to many musicians about this. They think it has many reasons, but also in part to do just with the risks involved and with the with the social stigma that's still associated. And we don't really think of this being in the West that there could be a social stigma associated with being a female singer or being in a you know rock band as a as a woman. But those social stigmas still exist.、Um, Did you talk to some of these young vocalists and musicians? Yes, this is not just、um, a phenomenon that happened, you know, ten, twenty years ago. Justina, who is this young female rapper who does very strong work, she said that this is just,、uh, you know, she's talking about the last several years that. There are also issues associated with entering the the underground music scene as a woman, where you have to depend on the collaboration of other men. So、mm-hmm. whether it's in the studio or in the production and whatnot, and that she, for example, was asked、uh, for certain kind of favors which she wasn't willing to offer in return for for having、uh, the kind of musical collaboration. So those issues are still also there. And also, you talked about、uh, rap music, which has been very popular in Iran and in the diaspora. Hitchcast. He's known as the godfather of Persian rap.、Uh, in the late 90s, he founded, sort of early 2000s, he founded the website、uh, Rapifarsi and really invited other people to post their、uh, rap songs there. And his own narrative of it is that. There was really nobody around to partake. There may be one or two other people, Yashar and and some other guy, and he really went out there and tried to get people interested and help them do it. And those young kids were interested because, as you know, Persian culture is very word-centric. Poetry is our most perfected art form, and so people took quite naturally, even young rappers took quite naturally to. Rap music because it is so word-centric. And another thing that the rappers told me was that they really like the revolutionary aspect of rap music. Rap music, of course, comes from revolutionary roots. Where hip hop in the U.S. its beginnings, at the very least, we're not talking about commercial hip hop, is a very revolutionary music that that has、um, voiced opposition to all to the police state, to the racial inequalities in the U.S. and so on. So. These rappers really also identified with the revolutionary aspect of hip hop and rap music. Hitchcast、uh, was one of the very early ones, and one of the few to really break into the mainstream. So, whereas the majority of young Iranians today listen to rap music, Hitchcast was someone who broke into the mainstream. So, before he left Iran, sometime around the you know in late 2009. Many older people would know who Hitchcast is. He had a song called、um, 
اختلاف it's about inequities in society and it starts with انجا تهران this year's تهران and then he lays out the land what kind of society this is and that's one song that many knew at the time تهران یعنی شهری که عجی که توش میبینی باعث تحریکه تحریک روح تا تو آشغال دونی میفهمی تو هم آدم نیستی یا آشغال بود اینجا همه گرگه میخواه باشی مثل بره بزن چش و گوشه تو من با کنم یه زرگه اینجا تهران لعنتی شوخی نیستش خبری از گل و بسنی چوبی نیستش اینجا چنگل بخور تو خورده نشی اینجا نصف اخته ای یه نصف وحشی اختلاف طبقاتی اینجا بیداد میکنه داره خفه توی تاکسی همه میخوان کرایه نده حقیقا روشن خودتو به اون را نزن روشن درش میکنم پس بمون جا نزن خدا باشو من چند سالی با ترک کنم خدا پاشو پاشو دینشون ها راحت از کارم کجا هاشو دیدی تازه اول کارم خدا پاشو من یه آشقالم با ترک کارم نمکی با چرخش کنار یه بیزی یونگ آردست اکسپرس در کتیک پولیتیکل و سوشل کندیشنز در ایران ترو در Some of them left in the to mid-2000s. Some of them left after the 2009 protest movement. And so when these artists leave Iran and take refuge in another country, be it Europe or the United States, how does their music change and the issues that they address in their music change? That's a very interesting question. So the critique that they expressed in Iran itself really differed depending on the, the rappers. So someone like Hitchcast, for example, he never expressed explicit political criticism. He did express explicit sort of social criticism. But the way that his discourse was critical of the, um, of the given political circumstances was that he gave in his music the responsibility for carrying the flag and holding up in our, Iran's honor to Iran's, the young men of Iran. And uh, there is a, a sort of sexist aspect to his music. Maybe, maybe sexist is going too far, but it's certainly his music speaks more than anything to young men, young mm. dispossessed men, those, you know, the millions of young men in, in Iran who are deprived of economic well-being by a state that is corrupt, where nepotism thrives, where educational opportunities are very competitive, and where it's difficult to become your own man by making a living and being able to form your own family and moving on in the in the ladder of you know the hierarchy of the patriarchy and so he addresses the hordes of those hordes of young men and implies through his music that the state is no longer capable of holding up Iran's honor and it is the foot soldiers the young men on the streets who have to do that so it's mm-hmm. sort of a discourse around honor and it's um, critical of the given circumstances in that way somebody else like Yas also a very very popular rapper he's more explicit so he talks about whatever is happening in, happening in society whether it's drug use or nepotism or Bahram who came about he wrote a song that was Uh, not just explicit, it was in fact a song that was a letter written to Mahmoud Ahmadinejad um, and it addressed the hypocrisy of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. So the way that they're critical depends. Once these rappers leave Iran, so Surush Lashkari, a.k.a. Hichkas, he left Iran after the 2009 Green Movement, sort of early in 2010. He published a song as he was sitting 
on the plane to uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. He asked his friends to put the song on the internet. And the song was a commentary of the state's harsh measures against the protesters in the 2009 mm-hmm. Green Movement. And um, the song is called Yeruzahupmiyad, A Good Day Will Come, when stones won't be flying in the air, when blood won't be running in the aqueducts. And so uh, it wasn't still really explicitly against it, but it pointed to this point in time when all of this would be behind us, when that kind of repression, that kind of treatment of the citizens would be behind us, of course, that implies that possibly that means the Islamic Republic is behind us. And so he had been questioned several times by the authorities and decided to leave the country because he thought that he could get into real trouble, even with that kind of very muted song. And uh, once they leave the country, their concerns change. They're no longer within the Iranian society, within all of its restrictions. And so they start looking elsewhere. So Hichkaz, for example, a few years after leaving Iran, had a song, Hajifiruz, about the racism that is behind the blackface clown that plays the deaf and goes around the streets and is sort of the comical character of our Persian New Year. Mm. امسالم تش رسید و هنو باز باغ بش لش هنوز گشت ایس پشم دوباره هم بلند پخش برخس 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 بگیریم برد داری رو جشن آبرخس برخس برخس بگیریم برد داری رو جشن. I've noticed that their concerns just move elsewhere, and they eventually, with time, they become less and less significant for the Iranian audience inside Iran itself. Doesn't mean these artists can't have very successful careers and find. Other audiences, expatriate Iranians, for example, Mohsen Namju has been very successful outside of Iran. He may have become less central to the discourse within Iran itself, and his work may have become less uh, sort of burning to Iranians inside um, Iran. And he himself doesn't aspire to do that kind of political work either. So the artist's focus shifts and they find other topics that are of importance to them and their lives. It's a natural process that happens. So how did consecutive governments after Rafsanjani, how did their attitude change towards alternative and underground music? Rafsanjani's government didn't really have to deal with alternative music at all because it hadn't come to the fore. Underground alternative music came to the fore during Khatami's term. And Khatami's presidency and his ministries, he became a bit of a lame duck president, especially in his second term. And the hardline forces became stronger in, in order to oppose the current of reformism. So we can't really assign everything that happened during Khatami's term even to Khatami, but he had created this amazing sort of much more open space where this underground music scene could thrive. And then Ahmadinejad was elected in 2005, but already toward the end of Khatami's term, this social and cultural space was becoming much more restricted. But then with Ahmadinejad's election, there was an open campaign to shut down these spaces. Uh, there was a, a campaign that was called the Morality Campaign. They went through the streets, arrested young people who looked like you know anyone that they thought didn't look according to the rules and guidelines and ideals of the Islamic Republic. So women with 
dress and headscarves that were too short, too colorful, too this, too that. Men who they perceived to be sort of obosh, hanging around, doing nothing useful, being a nuisance to society. They shut down a lot of cultural centers, took the funding from a lot of cultural centers. And all in all, they created a very active, open campaign where they marked these musicians and this whole scene as a satanic, satanic mm. scene. And there was a documentary that was aired on state television called Shock, where some of these musicians, including Hitch Cass, were featured. And they were really openly linked with satanists who mm. were doing acts that no Iranian would be okay with. So they filmed these kids who said, oh yeah, I went to this concert and there was this kind of music. And afterwards, the people who were there, they started sharing their blood. And sometimes when they go far, they even start eating each other's feces. You know, I mean, just some crazy outrageous things were pinned on this music scene. And it was seen as a sort of a moral panic was created around the underground music scene. But the underground music scene survived and many of its uh, creators did leave the country and now live abroad but many more uh, bands have popped up and taken their place and uh, Iran is a very young country so there's no shortage of young people who want to create music and you know create their own kind of musical fair and the kinds of spaces that they want to inhabit and to reflect their sense of who they are in the world this is no longer you know the pre-internet world this is a highly connected globalized world where they have access to everything that happens in the west they're oftentimes very much on top of the cultural fair in the west the newest thing and they keep in touch with that and they're not staying behind one of the issues that iranian musicians have been uh faced with is uh, the permit process. Even mm. when they get it, their concerts in danger of being canceled, as we have seen more recently that many prominent singers, they got the permit, but the last minute or when they mm-hmm. showed up to the concert mm-hmm. hall, the, mm-hmm. the doors were chained and they could not perform. It was canceled. Right. Yeah. First off, what was the permit process like? For people who wanted to publish their CDs or give concerts in public, you state in your book that it is probably fair to say that no building in Tehran has caused as much anxiety, disappointment, and desperation in musicians as the unmarkable building of the music office situated in Tehran's Rudaki Hall complex, which was renamed as Unity Hall or Talare Vahdat after the revolution. Most musicians... in Tehran make numerous pilgrimages to the offices on the fifth and seventh floors of the white marble building in order to request permits for their work. Yeah, the permit system is labyrinthine and it is just drives people crazy. It's hard to know what you need to do to get a permit and it's very opaque. It's very hard for someone like me to even understand exactly at which point it is decided, okay, this group should get a permit to, to perform or to publish their record. But what I can tell you is that there are these committees that sit down. So what you do is you first have to fill out a ton of forms, give all sorts of uh, prerequisites upon which you're judged. So 
what your album cover would look like. It's very important who's behind you, who's the producer, who's going to, does he have some weight within the ministry? Is he someone who's been working with the ministry for decades on several artists? Then he may have more weight. Is it a young person? Then it really will depend on the dynamics and the chemistry and whatnot. But basically your work is examined by these committees. There's a music committee and a committee on lyrics. They sit down, they're five to six people. They happen to be, for the most part, musicians who've been part of the official bodies of the Islamic Republic, whether it's uh, the Music Council of State Television and Radio or the universities or the House of Music. So they're musicians, mostly classical musicians, Persian classical or sort of national classical music. They listen to your lyrics. They decide whether it should be passed or failed. If you fail, you have uh, you can't apply again for another, depends on the lyrics or the music, for another three months or six months. You can apply again. If you fail again, then the period within which you can't apply becomes longer. So it depends. So people keep submitting, musicians keep submitting their music and lyrics, and uh, they're never told exactly, you know what, we can't do this because of this and this. Maybe you can change this. Oftentimes, they never get a response back. They don't even get a no. They just don't hear back from them. So they keep going, they keep begging, please tell me what's going on. And if they're lucky, maybe somebody will tell them, hey, look, it's too edgy, it's too rocky. It's, uh, that rarely happens. So it's a bit of a mystery. It has to do a lot with, I believe, the economics of it, with who the producers who are behind it, the profitability, and who gets to have a share of that, perhaps, though not necessarily these music councils do but perhaps other, these music committees, but perhaps other people who have a hand in the, in the business. But I hope that one day somebody who has been intimately involved in these music committees and the process of permit issuing comes out and writes a memoir and enlightens us all on you know, how this whole thing happens. But one thing that's for sure is that this ambiguity, this keeping people hanging is to the benefit of state officials because there are no clear criteria and no set ways of doing things. They can change their mind on the given political circumstances. Is it a moment when things seem to be okay in Iran and things are quite open? Well, why don't we, you know, this time let's let's allow this musician to perform. Is it post-2009 and things are not looking so good? Well, maybe we don't want a rapper to go on stage. Not that any rapper has ever been led on any stage. Not having very clear criteria allows them to have an open hand and to be to go as they wish with the given circumstances. Because recently we have seen an unprecedented increase in concert cancellations. For example, one of the recent cases is Shahram Nazari. That has created an uproar in the Iranian music community. Musicians have written a letter to Hassan Rouhani, Iran's president, objecting to increasing mistreatment of the music community and the illegal cancellation of concerts. I think that the social and cultural sphere and the musicians and practitioners and the participants of that sphere are a soft target. And there has been some a lot of anxiety uh, on the side of the more hardline and conservatives following the second election of Hassan al-Rouhani. And what we're seeing is a backlash against that. They're very nervous because again and again and again, Iranians have come out and voted for the more reformist candidate among the four front runners. People didn't really expect people to come out and vote for in an election of the Islamic Republic after 2009 and after all of that happened. 
and yet people came out en masse and voted in uh, Hassan Rouhani and they came out again just this year to vote for Rouhani again. Mm -hmm. And so the Iranian public is expressing over and over again what kind of politics it wants. It wants a more free, a more open society and the closure of concerts is ultimately the backlash of the more conservative forces within society that are anxious and nervous over over the political trends that are so visible to everyone as far as the vast public is concerned in Iran. They have more power to do so. So it's not that difficult for, you know, the intelligence ministry, the the um, interior ministry, those are positions that are, even though a part of Rouhani's cabinet, they must be approved by the supreme leader. So the forces within the government that can close down a concert, it could also just be vigilantes, it could be the besiege of that area, the Sapah, the Revolutionary Guard, doesn't take much for them to just close down the social sphere just to make sure that these spaces don't open too much. The Iranian music community and activists, they are putting pressure on Rouhani. After the election at a press conference, he said one of the outcomes of this year's elections was that everyone was at peace with music. But he said, however, we are not too fond of cheap music. Some say that it's fine as well. But in any case, I am certain our new government will give more support to the cultural community. It has not happened. What Rouhani was referring there to was the everyone is at peace with music. He was referring to the conservative frontrunner, Ibrahim Raisi, mm-hmm. um, cozying up with the rapper Amir Tatalu. Because Amir Tatalu, this uh, you know rapper who in his many years of beginnings sang about parties and girls and so on and has arms full of tattoos, but had sort of an about face probably because of a combination of factors. He endorsed Ibrahim Raisi, this cleric who is the custodian of Iran's holiest shrine in Mashhad. So this this photo was going around everywhere of Amir Tatalu with his forearms bare, full of tattoos, sitting next to Ibrahim Raisi and endorsing him. And the fact that Raisi allowed this meeting to take place yeah. uh, shocked everybody because how could a cleric like that sit next to a, a rapper who is being called cheap by some? And... Um, so he he was referring to the point that, well, if Raisi can sit with a rapper, then obviously the musical sphere should really open up. We have many musicians who are much more, who make a fakhir kind of music, fakhir being a, a word that in this context signifies a sort of quality or, you know, higher music. And so what Rouhani was saying was, if he can sit with a rapper, then, you know, the musical sphere of, of these other musicians should really open up. And people are putting pressure on Rouhani saying, hey, we, you were elected with a mandate because a majority of Iranians came out again and voted for you. You have a mandate. You are not just there to do business as usual. You're there to really change things for us. That's why we came out. And they're putting pressure on him. But to the extent to which he will have an impact on the sphere is, uh, you know, you see the result of it is, is questionable. It's interesting, this guy, Tatalu, that you talk about, he served prison terms in 2013 and 16. And he was charged with, quote, encouraging moral corruption. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. And, you know, some will say, I haven't spoken to him personally, but some will say that he, he's been put under psychological pressure and pressure in his, in his detentions or 
you know, he's been perhaps promised something or it's hard to tell. He did come out and sing a song called Nuclear Energy, where he collaborated with the Iranian Navy and was on a Navy ship. He was with actual Iranian soldiers in this video singing the song. So many saw that as him sort of coming around and the reasons for it. He says this is just how he feels. He feels Iran is under threat of attack by America, that someone like Rouhani is too soft a sort of president for Iran and that he's, uh, his heart is in it and he's taking sides with the conservatives. I also wanted to ask you about the cover of your book, which is the picture of a young woman with her eyes and mouth closed. But in your book, women are not prominently featured. Why? That is correct. Um, my goal with the book was to look at the public sphere of the Islamic Republic and highlight those musicians who had a very public face who were consumed by a lot of people. So what was permitted and what were the kind of, kinds of discourses that were more or less mainstream and were coming from within the Islamic Republic. So because the female voice has been banned, and as we discussed, there has been no female musician in post-revolutionary Iran within the framework of the Islamic Republic who's had a public face or a prominence like any of the musicians I cover. It, there couldn't be one. Hmm. The photo on the cover of the book is really a nod to that because, and I write about this in the book, it's a photo from a um, series called Listen by Nushat Havakolian. And she features these female musicians, they're professional musicians, vocalists, who can't publish albums or sing publicly to mixed gender audiences. And so she stages them in front of these sparkly backgrounds and the very passionate act of singing, but you can't hear them because their voice has been cut out. Mm. It wasn't my choice, by the way, it was my publisher's choice, but for me to agree to have that picture, and I did think about it a lot, for me to agree to have that picture on the cover of the book really made a lot of sense because it is a nod to the silencing of women that I write about in the book. And the silenced woman who you can't hear in a series called Listen, is precisely what comes through in the book because the, the large majority of all of this musical discourse is male. And that is as a result of the ban on the female voice. And I do hope that someone writes the book about what's happened to the female voice. But this is the first book on the issue of music and politics in post-revolutionary Iran. And so to deal with the public sphere and and the public discourse, there was unfortunately the lack of the female voice meant that it couldn't really be part of the core of the book. So in recent years, we have seen a proliferation of pop music, similar but a tamer version of what I grew up with before the 1979 revolution. It seems like the state treats pop music differently than alternative and independent music. Why? Pop music is, to a great extent, it is an industry now. It's a culture industry. It's regulated. There's certain producers. It's uh, it's it's more or less within within control, so to speak. And you know, pop music in Iran, as in elsewhere in the world, isn't really revolutionary. It only garnered that revolutionary aspect because of what it represented in Iran before the revolution. But when you think about it, it's, it's just the lyrics are usually quite tame. The music is totally mediocre. Uh, there's nothing revolutionary about pop music. 
and it's it's a sphere that is very well regulated. So this is something that Asif Bayad, who I mentioned, talks about. He doesn't talk about pop music or any of this, but he does talk about uh, the issue of control. So whatever is within the paradigm of the Islamic Republic, whatever is controllable, that's more permitted than anything that might escape that paradigm. You make a very interesting argument at the end of your book. You say the state had banned joyous music for two decades, and now that the state had reversed course to allow it, in its own interest, it authorized only an innocuous, quote, empty joy, as if it were trying defensively to occupy any space that might otherwise be taken up by real, possibly political feelings, or even just real spontaneous joy outside of its control. So they still have problem with how people experience joy. Absolutely, because when you think about it, joy is a very spontaneous... At the end of the day, you know, the, the slaves in the South, in America, something very revolutionary for them to do was to sing or to just hum a tune. Mm. And uh, this is how they kept their very strong musical traditions alive. The African slaves were brought here. When you think about it, the joy coming from within you, it, it is a very subversive thing because it can't, at the end of the day, can't be controlled, right? Mm. Even if you're in the worst kind of servitude, if you express that you still have that within you, that's subversive. That's not something that anybody can control. And so the issue of joy is, as long as it can be regulated, as long as it's a kind of joy that can be contained, in that kind of pop music, it's okay. But once it starts being coupled with spontaneity, something that is can't be controlled, it becomes an issue. And that's why some of you know, the alternative or underground music and, uh, you know, the kind of spontaneity or the kind of outside of the paradigm lyrics or music. It's also about sound, the kinds of sounds that they can create that haven't been approved and sanctioned with an Islamic Republic stamp. All of that is problematic. Dr. Nahid Siamdust is the author of Soundtrack of the Revolution, The Politics of Music in Iran. For a status, I am Malihir Azuzan, and thanks for listening. Yeah.
हमें बहुत 